Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we share the journey of a woman who lost her husband to cancer, to documenting her husband's last year of life in his quest to repair a broken little rocking chair for the granddaughter who was still yet to be here. She shares her family story of hope, courage, transformation, and love as they carry on without him, a message of love, lost, and recovery. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. This is That Thing About the Quest for Perry Winkle's Chair. My guest in this episode is a retired high school teacher turned children's book author, Judith Zelinga. She has traded lesson planning for bringing learning to life through storytelling. She sees the world through the eyes of her grandchildren rather than her students. I'd kind of like to start at the beginning and we get to your journey of, I mean, it's an amazing journey of where you've come from because of um, the unique aspect of having some tragedy in your life, some triumphs in your life. Let's start in the beginning. Where'd you grow up? Uh, my early life, uh, I spent in Canada. I grew up on a farm in my early life. And so uh, we did move eventually to the suburbs when I was nine, I believe. And I had a wonderful childhood. I have two sisters and a brother. And we were a middle-class family. Uh, grew up in Burlington, Ontario, Canada. That's um, in the bottom part of Ontario, which is the most populated part of Canada. And so I had a great uh, upbringing, great education, and uh, then found myself in in a situation where I was going to be moving to Europe. So I spent a couple of years in Germany, then ended up in North Carolina, and my father was in the steel industry. So my parents eventually ended up in the Chicago area. And so that's how I came to be in the United States. Well, that's... Um... That's a heck of a journey. Where did, you went to university, didn't you? I actually was a late bloomer. I should have gone when I was young, but I ended up as a single mother at 37, uh, starting my education, liberal arts degree in Spanish. So uh, I grew when growing up in Canada, I loved French and I, I love language and culture. So um, the logical thing for me, I'm... I'm in the United States now. I want to learn another language. So Spanish is it. So little did I know at the time that um, I would end up being a school teacher. Do, do you also speak French because you lived in Canada? I do. And it's, a little bit of German because I lived in a German village for two years. So I've got a lot of languages in my head. <laughs> in, I mean, that's interesting. It, it's French is one of my favorite favorite languages. I learned French in high school way back when. We won't say when exactly. <laughs> the, I took four years of French there, but I only remember like about, I don't know, a few phrases now, unfortunately. It's kind of crazy. Right. So do you, I, I have to ask you this because you, you, you have Canadian. Is, is, is there a difference between French Canadian, like French in Canada and French in France? Yeah, there are some differences. The, the French Academy is very strict about not using slang or dialectic 
dialect words, just as the Spanish Academy is that way about South American Spanish and Latinos, uh, the way they speak. And the Spaniards, of course, say for happiness, they say felicidad. And in Mexico, they would say felicidad. Right. So there's, so, a, there's a difference even in the Spanish between right. Spain and, and like Mexico or, or Latin America down there. That's interesting, actually. I did not I did not know that. You said you you became a school teacher. I did, and I think I, I didn't set out to be a school teacher, but I I always loved school. So um I just gravitated toward that. Uh after I got my degree, I was thinking more like international business because I wanted to travel and that sort of thing. But um, I started tutoring in college. I was older than some of my professors. <laughs> so I kind of took that on that role and mentored um, other students that were like half my age and seemed to really get a kick out of that. It was very rewarding. So that's why I added that direction. What did you, what did you teach? Oh, I was a Spanish teacher and also taught French. What what grade? At the high school level. High school level. High school level. So not the little kids, but at one position I had, I taught kindergarten through eighth grade, and I had four hundred and forty students. So that was interesting. I had to do a lot of different kinds of levels of lesson planning. Holy moly! What a diverse! <laughs> wow. Where'd you meet your husband? I actually met him through a friend and I had actually was just graduating from college uh, at 41. I wrapped it up in four years. And um, so I was, I had been so busy with my studies and everything. I really didn't, didn't have the want to settle down. And I met him and he was just such a terrific guy and the kindest and wisest man I'd ever met. So we we made it happen in 1999. Yeah, so that's when our journey together began. So I have, I have a quick question. I, you obviously you became an author. Um, Where did your passion to become an author come from? Was it prior to you going to university or to college, or was it did that come later? Uh, actually, I've always wanted to be a writer. Just never had the courage or the you know, the time or just the passion, really, I think. And but I remember in in grade 13 in Canada, we had grade 13 back then. My high school students were like, oh, heck no, I can barely get through 12th grade. You had to go to grade 13. Well, in those days in Canada, we had grade 13. And I wrote a, a, a an essay for my English teacher, and it was called Molding a Life. And I saw on the bottom she had written, did you write this with a bunch of question marks and see me, dot, dot, dot. And, wow. and I went to her and she said, you, you did not write this. I think I've read it somewhere before. And I said, uh, no, Miss Moore, I wrote that. And she said, I can't believe a perspective coming out of someone of your age that is it my it's mind-boggling to me so i always knew i had wrote poetry when i was a kid and i always knew i had 
a gift, which I would say is a gift of being able to put words together that, that are impactful. And sometimes I read back over what I've written and think, I don't remember writing that. It's like, um, did I really write that? So, you know, some people just kind of have a way of putting things down on paper. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, my father was a journalist. So I, I understand that from that perspective. His passion was writing, his passion was sharing the word, the written word. He had an admiration of the written word um, in all forms, you know, newspapers. Right. You know, uh, stories, short stories, encourage that is yeah, everything, all the way up through a novel. And and he, um, yeah, he was, I, I grew up in that environment. I grew up in a newsroom, actually. I uh, spent a lot of time in a newsroom. Wow. From the time I was. That's so interesting. Six you years would old. Have, you would have so many perspectives about so many things just from your exposure to all that. Yeah, it's, it, it, they always wanted me to go into being a writer, same thing, and I kind of, put it off and put it off, put it off. And I became a cop. And when I became a cop, I just got too busy and couldn't do it until That's after. right. We do. Life gets in the way. And yeah. yeah. I retired yeah. last year, a week before the pandemic lockdown. I didn't know that was coming. And so it was rather timely for me to, uh, and I moved. So, uh, yeah, it just happened that, I missed all of that online business and everything. Well, that's a positive. I mean, that's positive, obviously, but I'm sure you would have had con something to contribute to the children or the kids, right? you know, from that perspective. And I miss them terribly, got to say. Well, I, I, I have them on as Facebook friends, and some of my former students are having children now, and it's just so fun to catch up with them and I'm sure, see I'm sure. what, they, what they're doing in their lives. It's beautiful. How long did you teach? Uh, I taught for about since for about 17, 18 years. That's a long time. Yeah, on and off. Um, I did take a, a couple of years off and do some educational consulting and that sort of thing. But I always was drawn back to the classroom. Yeah, I, I, people, teachers are teachers are unique. You have to, you have to have something within you that really is. The ability to share with the world and 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 help nurture minds into growing into something else. So, I appreciate you. Thank you. So, when did you and your husband uh, first notice something was wrong with him? Well, we were having. A, I have an English background, so I, one year I decided we're going to have an English garden party. So we had done all of this up and had. My mother brought all of the British memorabilia of the royals and all that. So we had it all set up very nicely. And that very day, uh, it was in August of 2013, and all of a sudden, my husband said, I can't swallow. I'm like, what do you mean you can't swallow? He said, no, the food is not going down. So I thought immediately, I'd heard of people having hiatal hernias, so... I looked it up online, and so I said, you have to go to the doctor. So we were referred to a gastroenterologist, and they did a scope, which was routine when a person has that sort of um, symptom. And, uh, and then the doctor came in, and he said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your husband has Barrett's esophagus, 
and there's a cancerous lesion on there. And what's we a Barrett's esophagus? Barrett's esophagus is something we knew nothing about, and it can lead to cancer. And there's people walking around everywhere with Barrett's esophagus, and they have no idea they have it. I mean, is so, it like a swelling or inflammation? Is it a? Is that's it a, right. It's like a thickening, or it, it can turn the esophagus. Um, yeah, it's just um, it's something that can be treated. But heck, uh, if you don't know you have it, and they don't do routine scopes because they're right. expensive and they have to put the person out, and <coughs> so. Uh, yeah, we had no idea. Once in a now, while, my husband would have heartburn and he'd take a Tums. I was going to say, were there any indications prior to that? That I mean, helping to educate people so they can have more awareness. I know that's part of one of your passions is to educate people and give them um, awareness. We didn't even know what acid reflux was. We didn't. That wasn't in our vocabulary. We just didn't know about it. I mean, he went to the doctor every year. and You know, he had sinus He's, he had like throat clearing and sinus problems. He's like, I got my father's sinuses. But now come to find out later that that is an indicator of, of, the, the of trouble with your esophagus. Oh, my darn. The, um, the, is it hereditary typically, or is it something that just shows up with uh, environmental it can be. They have seen it in families. So people need to be aware of that. Um, after my my husband was diagnosed, his sister was diagnosed with Barrett's esophagus, wow. but luckily she didn't have the lesion on it like he had. So the lesion, the lesion <laughs> would, would be the cancer that um, right. they found on it. So I'm sure they did a biopsy and the typical stuff. So how did that affect you guys? Well, we were shocked because he was about the healthiest eater anybody ever met. Um, uh, you know, he was just a really healthy guy. He had no bad habits. I mean, it was just struck down with it. So and there was no pain, no, no smoking, no drinking. And people used to make fun of him saying, ah, you live on nuts and berries because he was very conscious of what he put into his body. So, yeah, That's it was, problem. it was, uh, shocking. And, uh, but he took it all in stride and was going to follow what the doctor's recommendations were and the oncologist. He started with radiation and then they, they did rounds of chemo. And then he was referred to the University of Chicago Hospital and they said, the best we can do for you is to remove part of your esophagus and part of your stomach and do a resection. And that was his his. his best chance for beating it. So, cause he wanted to eliminate all that cancerous tissue, but. Was there a yeah, cancer in his stomach? Yeah, because it was right at the juncture between the stomach and the esophagus. It was just up from that. So they, it had spread a, a bit into his stomach. So they removed parts of both. So that juncture was then missing, but they have been able to, people have survived that esophagectomy before so they they had to give it a shot right. so that's what they did now how long the time frame what was the time frame in, in all of this was it from 20? diagnosis to when he passed away it was 20 months 
So within that time period, he, they, you guys tried the chemo and the radiation, radiation. and then evolved Just, into the operation. Right. And do, you, do you think the operation may have helped to spread it? Uh, I don't know, but I think it was probably already past that point that they said when they did the initial uh, scope in the University of Chicago that it was teetering on a stage four, but later uh, they did a spinal tap and it was in his uh, spinal fluid. So it had gone to his brain. So, yeah. So, I mean, that we did what we could and, and the doctors did what they could and it was just too far gone. It was too late when it was discovered because people with uh, stage one, two, three, and some force, they do the treatments and then they're okay. But if you get to that certain point, for example, my best girlfriend at school, the month my husband passed away, her husband was diagnosed with the same thing and, and lived for 20 months and he was 50. So, and left three children. They're mentioned in my book. So he didn't know either. And he was a healthy living man. So is it something in our diet? Is it this acid reflux that we're not paying attention to? We don't recognize. What is it? Yeah, that's, I mean, that. I've had, and we talked a little bit about this before we started this interview, that you and I have something in common. My father died of esophageal cancer, but his was more attributed to uh, drinking um, and smoking. He drank and he smoked, unfortunately, to an excess. So from that regard, that's where his originated from, at least that's what the doctor Well, we don't know that because there are people that do that their whole lives and live to be in their 80s. So it's possible he had a propensity for that too. Possible, it was some something back in his heritage that right. would make him susceptible to it. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. Unfortunately, a lot of I've lost a lot of people to cancer in my house. It, the cancer C word is a dirty word. <laughs> yeah, when I've, I've lost best, best friends, I lost uh, two uncles, three cousins. My both my grandparents on my mother's side, my stepfather and my father. Um, and an aunt, all mm -hmm. to cancer. My sister beat it twice. So bless her. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It it's a it's a very difficult journey to go through. So because of that difficult journey, and you guys knew what you expected. I know that you chronicalized it. You documented. Did you document the journey during the time period, or did you go back and and kind of reflect upon? Well, that? most specifically, I um chronicled his repairing the little broken rocking chair. At the time, I didn't know that it was going to evolve into this little book, but it just made sense a few years later to, when I look back through the photographs, I thought, this is important, this is powerful, that while he was attempting to heal himself, he was healing this little chair. And so... I thought to honor him and to maybe share with others and that are going through something similar and for grandparents that, you know, to do things a little bit more deliberately than we are maybe as a grandparent to prepare 
you know, it's, it's inevitable. Right. Your, your grandchildren will lose you. And uh, so, yeah. So I, I have a, if I can, if I can interrupt just for a second, I just have a quick question. Um, just so I understand the, the order. When he started to fix the chair, he had known that he had cancer. That's correct. So, and then you also knew that he, there was going to be a granddaughter on the way. That's that's exactly right. She was okay. born in the in 2014. He died in 2015. Okay, so the he had um, a motivation to get this chair fixed for his right. granddaughter who's yet to be born, and then that's why you were documenting, kind of documenting it into this book, basically. Right at the time, I didn't know it as that. But it became that. It became that. So mm -hmm. that's interesting. It. Um, so I'm assuming that you know, basically, he was trying to make a legacy for his granddaughter, something to remember him by. Right. And was he a, a woodworker? What did he have a hobby? What did he do for well, a living? He, he, well, one time he was a stone cutter. He was an excellent gardener. Um, he did a lot of different things, but he was very handy. And yeah, so it was nothing for him. And he liked to take old things and make them new. He loved to refurbish and make beautiful. And yeah. So he that found a rocking chair for his daughter, granddaughter to be, and um, said, I got to fix this. Right. So he got, did he get it done? He did get it done. He got it painted and, uh, yeah, she was born, and yeah, I don't want to give away the story, but yeah, it's powerful. So let's go back to you had said a few minutes ago that you um, you want to help kids learn from this experience of losing grandparents and so forth. Did you set out to write a children's book? I mean, when when you first said, "Hey, I think I can do something with this," was it in your mind to say, "Hey, I need to create this for as a children's book"? Well, I think it was actually born in the classroom with my high schoolers. I found that uh, after he passed away, I became, uh, the way I approached my lesson plans were very different. I wanted to teach more now about, not necessarily about grammar, Spanish grammar, but tell me a story, Abuelita. So we did a unit where, um, children were to act as a grandmother telling a story to their grandchild and then translate it into Spanish. So I shared my story. I, I put it all in a PowerPoint with the pictures and everything. And it was a big hit with the teens. They loved the story because it was a true story and it made them feel something. Right. So although it's written in very simple language, because it's my granddaughter's voice, it's, it's, um, I'm teaching her to read it now for live events, but it's written for children, but children and adults alike understand the emotion and the message behind it. Oh, that's interesting how that kind of all kind of comes together during this journey. Did, um, what was the spiritual aspect of it? Uh, well, in the nineties, my husband wrote a poem called eternal spring he had profound faith and, and it was actually, it fits perfectly with the book because it's about 
Um, I'll read a little excerpt from it. It's in the book and it's, uh, we run, we skip, we laugh and sing for well, we should, the time is spring. The nights are short, the days are long when springtime calls to summer's throng. We run, we skip, we laugh and sing, but then a bruise, a bump on the knee. God reminds us of our mortality. Sometimes when life is at its best, when all seems calm, at peace, at rest, the reality that we are dust for God reminds us as he must. This life was given here on earth, some years back upon our birth. For all to him we shall return. So that's an excerpt from his poem. And he was writing about eternity. And this was years before he was ever ill. So I thought that was quite fitting. It seemed to go with the, the theme of a children's book because it's written in a, a light and uh, musical, you know, light musical prose. So It's an amazing, an amazing poem. People, I, I appreciate poetry because it tells a story within a few verses that um, is different, comes at life in a different way, in a different vision, in a different opportunity to understand life. And in this case, yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a really nice poem. You write poetry, don't you? I do. <laughs> now, did he write this? He wrote this while you guys were married? Uh, no, just before we got married. And married? he had lost his, his wife to cancer. So he was inspired. And, and so it's just really, it's his work. And he actually sent it to the National Library of uh, Literary Heritage and they accepted it and published it for him. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. yeah very so it's cool. got a little provenance there. So the, the journey to get the chair done, um, you said it took, how long did that take? Well, he did it over time because he, he would get tired. And uh, so it was over a few months. And then um, and then she was born. And uh, yeah, so... It was, he worked very hard to, to beat it. And um, then he was resolved at the end and he knew where he was going. So it wasn't a sad time. It was uh, time to celebrate when he came home in hospice. Right. So people came to visit him and he was full of jokes. And, you know, he was always wanting, he didn't want anybody to feel sad about it because, he knew he was going to meet his maker, and uh, he was okay. He was okay. Yeah, participating in end of life, um, I think in this country, people don't appreciate the value in that. Obviously, my podcast is one more thing before you go, and you know, it, it's a, it's the opportunity to say one more thing before you go. In in any circumstance, especially one like this, that time is valuable, and words are valuable. And being with each other is valuable, and families are valuable. So the opportunity that they that you guys had is a wonderful thing, because you had the opportunity to say the one more thing. And that's exactly right. And that's why I, especially at times like this, when a lot of um, children have lost their grandparents over the last year, and it just makes me so sad. But uh, one reader told me that. She was going to be using the book to 
use in her church community because there were a few kids that lost their grandparents in there from COVID. And they were going to talk about, they were actually going to talk about um, what their grandparents meant to them. And for those that still have their grandparents and those that have lost them and what are the gifts that they have and what's funny about them. And just to be, just to have them formulate and uh a profile of their grandparent so they always have it to write it down or to draw a picture or whatever remember i mean remember Mm -hmm. yeah everybody wants to leave a legacy in life and and grandchildren are a legacy in 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 their own right but it's always nice to make sure that you remember those people in your life before you lose them so that afterwards you can go back and in touch on that again it's always a good thing um did this whole experience give you a uh, a clear understanding of life and death? Yes, it did. Um, I just really feel, uh, I think it strengthened my faith for, for sure. And I'm not afraid to talk about people dying now. I'm not afraid to talk about my own mortality. And also that I share with my granddaughter that grandpa Neil's in heaven and you'll see him again. And so some people said, well, that's kind of a sad story for children and children are more resilient than we think than we give the credit for because they don't have the baggage <laughs> yet. They know the purity of, of life and uh, they don't have any selfish motives and they can, right that she understands. Well, in reality, I think that children should be taught, they should be taught life and death in what each one of them mean. Because there's, there's a, everybody, inevitably, you are going to pass on at some point in your lifetime. You, you're born, you have all this good stuff in between, mm-hmm. and then you pass on. It, it, it's inevitable. And you can celebrate it, and you can embrace it you can understand it and i think it's easier when kids uh especially if they grow up in an environment where you teach them the value of both life and death and what really happens that it gives them um a a bit a better appreciation of the process instead of just being thrown into it or surprised by it or what just happened why right and i also included ecclesiastes 3 at the back of the book, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. So all of that tied together in a little package makes for a nice children's book. And what I can ask, what's your, what is the age range of children that this is directed to? Well, I've talked to teachers about that and it would seem that the the moral message and the spiritual message and the emotion are meant for older children, but it is written in like seventh, second through fifth grade. But there's a lot of grandmothers and grandfathers that have read this, that it brings them to tears. And they say, uh, my husband is going to make three rocking chairs for my grandchildren. 
that's on his honey-do list. So if it if it inspires people to to move in that direction, it's a beautiful thing. Just it's because really it's it's uh, yeah, being more deliberate and and leaving something special. So let's talk about the name, Perry Winkle's chair. Okay, well, my granddaughter's name, well, I'm not going to tell you that. But anyway, the this character in this story is Periwinkle. And Periwinkle is the official color of the esophageal cancer awareness. Oh, so, yeah, and on, on every page, there is a hidden esophageal cancer ribbon in each illustration. I didn't get to talk about my illustrator, a wonderful... Uh, artist from Chicago that I just found by chance on LinkedIn. She doesn't even do children's books. She's too busy because she's a courtroom sketch artist for the Chicago Tribune. So that's a wide variance between. <laughs> I I know she did all the famous things like famous trials. So the illustrations are very different than most children's books because they're they're like cat courtroom sketch drawings and so they're interesting but they're i mean my granddaughter and my husband spring to life off the pages it's just uncanny the job she's done her name's cheryl cook oh it's a unique approach we'll call it a unique approach right presenting the story that's pretty cool actually so yeah it's so the, it was a collaboration um you wrote Most definitely yeah, and she did, did the illustrations and for she it. And she was she was not, of course, in court because um, it was during the pandemic. It, there had just been a lockdown in Chicago, and that went on for a long time. So she and I spent our days on the phone and and online putting together this beautiful work of art. It's the the illustrations are artwork. That's all I could say about that. Well, that's she's amazing. a she's a commercial artist, so. Well, like I said, and it's a, a very unique. It, everybody, how do, how do I say this the right way? You, it when you look at most children's books, they draw things for children, and they do it from a children's perspective. And sometimes they're very simple. So this is a very unique way of threading the story through a visual perspective to allow them to kind of get closer to it and understand it exactly. a little more. Exactly right. So, uh, that's the way I, I can see it. Thank you for that. I see it that way too. Um, so I know you have a, you were talking about the little ribbons in between the different areas of the book. What's your mission in the area of cancer awareness? Uh, it gives me a platform to talk about it in like many situations. Um, although I wouldn't talk about it if I was reading to a group of children Right. I would just ask them to look for the periwinkle ribbon. But if I can, at the same time, speak to people about acid reflux and about, you know, pay attention to that. It's not something to fool with. It's just, uh, it's striking down a lot of people that are unaware of, the implications of ignoring it. Do you work in any, in any of the uh, awareness, like PSA type awareness? 
I actually, I actually follow ecan.org, which is based out of Maryland. And a woman from a town over, she started this about 13 years ago. She lost her husband when he was quite young. She had young girls. So she started this ecan.org. And uh, I follow her and she will soon be doing a piece on the book. She said her name is Mindy Mintz Mordecai. And so I, I do what I can. And I, I tell his story to my followers on Facebook and just want to make sure, you know, if we can just help one family either through the, with their grieving or one family that, can identify it, it sooner. So, so what's the plot? What's the what's the story within Periwinkle Share? You know, it's kind it of like starts a good... out where uh, he's not able to go to work anymore, so he occupies himself and he finds the chair and he looks at the chair. How am I going to ever fix this chair? And and in the end, we have Periwinkle enjoying her chair. Even though he's not there to see her, she has that. Okay. So tell me, what, what inspires you? I think I, I'm really inspired by nature, and I'm inspired by art. I dabble in art a little bit, but I have some more writing to do. And uh, I have a story. Uh, I interviewed someone, an elderly gentleman a few years back who has since passed on, but I'll be working with his granddaughters and we're going to put his story together. Oh, very cool. And then I have some nature with my grandchildren type stories that are in the works. So I'm pretty excited about my future with writing. Very cool. Publishing. And then, and you know, the, people that say that you're too old to do something, um, take a lesson from this because you're never too old to start a new. Right. I feel like I, I, it's a new beginning for me. It's like another chapter. So exactly. it's 100%. awesome. How can somebody find more uh, out about you and your book and where to get it? My book is available worldwide on Amazon. And also, you could go to my website at judithsilinga.com and if you buy a book from my website i uh what comes along with it is a little uh a little rocking chair kit that you can put together with a loved one oh very cool it's a little wooden like a little 2d wooden rocking chair and i i include stickers with it so i've had a few families and and then they send me pictures of the finished product, and then they, uh, and then I put them on my Facebook page. Very and cool. also, one of one of my readers put uh, put her glued her chair in the back of her book, and then drew around it. So she added her own art to it. So it's pretty exciting. It's evolving. It's something different all the time. And it's evolving in a positive way. So that always works. Do you have any advice for others that are going through the same journey that you went through? Uh, try to be as positive as possible. We like to keep humor right at the surface all the time. 
and uh, just to really treasure your moments, make them make them really count those those last moments. That's that's yes, absolutely one hundred percent. And then that moment, you need to say what you want to say. I will have all of the links and everything in order to contact you through your for Instagram and for your website and for how to get the book and uh, Facebook and groups and so forth. So those will be in the show notes for everyone just so you have an easy access to find Judith and how to buy her book. Right, um, and I'm, is, on, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I don't have a whole lot on there yet, but I'm just getting the knack of that. So I can be found a, there as well. Have to start, have to start. That's the only way that you can move forward with it. This is one more thing before you go. So is there any words of wisdom that you want to share before we go? Uh, okay, I want to read a little bit from uh, Neil's poem. I'll just finish it up. Some years back upon your birth, for all to him we shall return. For deep inside our souls we yearn to go to him. For in his rest, it's spring and summer at its best. To run, to skip, to laugh and sing. To him eternal praises bring. We run, we skip, we laugh, we sing. Thanks be to God for eternal spring. That's an outstanding way to end this interview. Judith, thank you very much for sharing your journey, your experiences, your book, and what you give back to the world as a teacher. Um, I appreciate that. You inspire, you motivate, you educate. And that's a very good thing. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Michael. I so appreciate you having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Before you go, have a nice day, have a nice day, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2000, all rights reserved.